guys and welcome to this episode of Cleardcast. Today we're talking about security clearance reciprocity. The Intelligence and National Security Alliance's Security Policy Reform Council just released a new white paper about this important topic. Three members of the council are here with us today. Charlie Allen, principal at the Chertoff Group, Kathy Furson, CEO of Furson Associates, and Mary Eddington, Director of Federal Security at KPMG. I'm not going to tell you any more about all three of those people, but you should Google each of them and look up their bios because it is an impressive career track in the intelligence and national security industries. I appreciate your taking the time, and I also appreciate your taking the time to write this white paper and address the topic of security clearance reciprocity. It seems to be, to me, covering this topic a lot for clearance jobs, a kind of forgotten element of reform right now with all of the other things that we have going on. But when I'm sitting at NISPAC meetings, meeting with security officers, many of them are asking what the government is doing to address this issue. And I'm not used to getting getting very good answers about what's going on and what's being done to address it. Um, so why do you think reciprocity maybe isn't a focus right now while I hear a lot about continuous evaluation, NBIS, e-adjudication, these other topics? Basically, reciprocity is an issue that gets continuing attention. I think the difficulty is that it's embedded in all the other issues. The reason that it's harder is because it's, it overlaps the administrative stovepipes of acquisition and security. Uh, this goes way back to when Charlie and I started the, and, and, you know, and Charlie is the initiator of the Security Policy Reform Council. Our first paper in 2010 talked about the gap between acquisition and security, and that gap is still there. So industry lives with the results of this, and therefore industry has that overarching view, but it's harder because it overlaps the administrative to address straight on by government because it overlaps the administrative stovepipes of acquisition and security. So industry is the one that lives with the results and has a unique view, but it's harder to bring the government pieces together seamlessly. And that's why this this paper is so important. It lays out the specifics in ways that industry hasn't done before. And, you know, we have Mary Eddington on the line with us. Mary was key to uh, a previous paper on reciprocity that's on the INSA website of having government collect data and to try to bring it together. So this lays out a role for both industry and government to work together in better ways. No, this is a historic problem. It has been uh, the burn of the saddle for, and that was the reasons, as you pointed out, uh, Kathy, it was the reason we set it up. I couldn't get reciprocity within the government, much less if you were trying to move people from one contract to another within who were within scope who who are contractors. It it is a it is a terribly painful problem. What really angered me so much was that the lack of reciprocity among the agencies. And, and obviously, it's been a deep and plaguing area at the whole issue of contracts. It's an unconscionable problem that agencies have, and I agree, it's be, between those who are dealing with program information and making decisions and the security side of this. They just will not, uh, and some agencies say, well, it'd be good. Yes, the persons in standing say, I'll pick my old agency, CIA, but we do our own checks. So we'll, we'll decide whether to put this person on a contract from a private company or not. We'll take a look ourselves independently. It just adds up in the aggregate beyond belief. 
And it, if you meet the security standards from one three-letter agency to the other, you're a contractor and you're in scope, you've been polygraphed, and you've, you've had the past all the background, this should be, an, this should be a relatively automatic issue uh, and the person should be put on the contract. If, if there's something that the agency that is putting the person now who is on another contract, on a new contract, they want to do additional checks, fine, but do it. It's 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 this paralyzed uh, decision making that that is unconscionable. I talked to uh, I was in a meeting with Mr. Coates this week, the DNI, and he he finds these these issues extraordinarily painful and arcane. I would add that the reason it doesn't get the same amount of attention is that there are some government leaders who think that reciprocity has been solved because eventually contractors do get crossed over or their their clearance does get transferred to another agency. One of the things that we're pointing out in this paper and we have in others is it's the time frame that is so bothersome when it's taking days, weeks, and months for reciprocity to occur. That's, Mary, that's a great point. Thank you. That making that point. They just think, well, it, it eventually gets solved. But meanwhile, if I'm program manager at a big private sector defense or intelligence firm, and I, I have these invaluable people with these, these women and these men who have great skills, I can't just let them go. I have to put them on overhead. And eventually, that is, that is written into the contract that if it takes, uh, if you have uh, a huge a $400 million contract and you have to hold 10, 15 people because you can't immediately put them on the job, that adds up. It is something that it should be solvable. And you mentioned how it disproportionately affects industry when they're trying to move people on and off these contracts, but it definitely affects the government workforce as well in terms of their employment mobility. Why is it important for both government and industry to address this? I mean, it's again, like most issues in the intelligence community, it's with the government to fix the problem, but it has a major impact across both whether you're a government or, or an industry worker in intelligence. The bottom line here is that um, industry is the one that actually ends up with the metric. And the metric is, is that cost, as Charlie was referring to, the cost of, um, of overhead. It's very hard to be able to actually to, to get any dollar that is spent on overhead for industry that is not spent on mission is, is a waste to the U.S. taxpayer. And neither government nor industry wants that. Again, it's a matter, but, but government is working within, within its own sort of processes. And again, it's back to the stovepipe issue. It's hard for them to get over some of this. Now, organizations like, and I'll, I'll use the specific organization, uh, the PAC-PMO, the Performance Accountability Council Program Management Office, organizations that are in a position to, to uh, collect some data and to try to have an overarching view themselves can help illustrate this problem and help the agencies come together on it. But industry has a very important role to play, too, because we're the ultimate metric. One of the challenges here is that we have two really polar opposite frameworks that are trying to uh, address this issue. The government, uh, they, don't, they don't manage to a bottom line. They don't, they don't have to generate revenue to um, meet their business expenses, uh, contractors do. So we have the immediate impact of not having people at work and getting paid for doing contract work to the government. So the government doesn't feel that impact. But one of the things we tried to do in the paper was to point out 
the impact of the lost mission hours because the government does have a mission and they're given a budget to accomplish that mission. So one of the things we're intending to do with this paper is create an impact that the government can recognize and hopefully understand that reciprocity does immediately affect them in some way. Quite frankly, the government has been asking for that. You know, what they've been asking us to do is to is to come up with some of these specific examples that they can deal with that aren't just sort of, you know, anecdotal stories, although, again, anecdotes are data points, but to try to put them together in themes, as we have done here, and, and let me say at this point that, that besides the work that Mary Eddington has done on this paper, I also want to give credit to Greg Torres, who's a former Department of Defense employee who's now with Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, because he did a great deal of work in pulling pulling this paper together this way and did an excellent job. The whole idea that you have specifics that the government can actually deal with that are thematic, that's part of why we end up with, with uh, talking about you know three principal impediments to reciprocity, the inconsistency of the policy, the lack of transparency and the limited information sharing, the failure to allocate resources to process the reciprocity request and conduct the polygraph. You know, those are the three impediments that then we can start to work on together. And again, we can continue to collect information. Well, in a lot of your, you make, you know, 14 recommendations in the report, and a lot of those really come down to getting the intelligence through government agencies to adhere to policies that's written or clarify policy where it's ambiguous. Which, like I say, when you read a white paper like that, it's it common sense to me. Of course, we should be doing this. But as we know, things in government aren't always that easy. Why is it so hard to, to get policy implemented across the intelligence community on topics like this? The 10 recommendations, they're very, they're very sound. They're very solid. These are very, very common sense recommendations that, that we should have gotten past some of these problems as a community a long time ago. There's an innate problem, and I think it has grown since the, the Snowden events, that somehow green badgers are not to be trusted, uh, or they're not as trusted, and that we have to do additional checks. It takes additional time to consider moving them. Uh, well, that's exactly the wrong, the wrong attitude. If they're, if they're, contractors have to meet the same standards of security, but there is this problem of we have many thousands of contractors and large Companies, large and small, but large in particular, have to move people from one contract to another, have to have agility and flexibility to do so, and the confidence that these are fully vetted people, and because they have a green badge, doesn't mean that they'll be put into every government compartment. That's not true. They'll be cleared to the level required for the contract or any security relating to that contract they can be briefed into. We've got to have more confidence and more risk management. If we don't do this, Mr. Coates will continue to be frustrated as he was a couple of days ago when I talked to him. The problem with policy, there's an attempt at that top level to write the policy, as Charlie says, in a way that will meet the needs of an incredible array of government agencies doing extremely important things, particularly now as we're moving into an era where, you know, with the move of, of the National Background Investigations Bureau into DRD, you know, and, and the redoing of the policy under the PAC PMO, what's happening there is that now you're not just worried about the intelligence community, you're not just worried about the defense community, you're really worried about the civilian government as well. This is part of what brings things that have been under the purview of the Office of Personnel Management as well as the Director of National Intelligence. 
And so the problem in terms of is not so much the acceptance of the policy, because I think that at that high level, and this is part of you know, part of what the what they're trying to do now is establish that high level doctrine, but then also to do a better job of drilling down into the specifics that can actually be tailored to the individual agencies. But the problem is not the acceptance, the problem is the implementation. So you end up having guidelines that go down to officers, down, you know, many layers of bureaucracy, and somebody down on that bottom line has to be able to implement that policy. And if if the policy is not clear, they do not implement it in the same way, even though they have the best of intentions to do it. That's part of where you need not only the clarity in the policies and the granularity in the policies, but you also need to have a way of evaluating the consistency or, or at least a place where people can report inconsistencies. A few years ago when we were working on, on this issue, um, one of the past times, you know, the director of national intelligence was going to try to have something that would be a phone number where you could report reciprocity fouls, you know, things that in your impression are, are not complying with the policy. Where is it that people report that? You need to be able to have a feedback loop like any, like any good uh, analytic process. You need to have a feedback loop so where people can see things that are going wrong so you can see what it is you need to do to fix it. With this, with the uh, directive that the DNI has the authority to take back authorities from those who are not complying. Again, the clarity is going to be a problem, and the time frame is going to be a problem. It's going to take a long time to be able to actually validate that somebody at some other level is not carrying out the policy. So again, I think it becomes important to uh, to pay for us as industry to start paying attention to our metrics and then also advocating for a feedback loop. One of the challenges is that we have policy, but we don't have a forcing function. We've got these seeds, these security executive agency directives, and there is one on reciprocity, seed number seven. However, uh, it, it does include certain metrics in it, but there's no forcing function that's measuring whether or not agencies are meeting that policy intent, and there's no consequence if they don't. It's not that individuals have malintent. And I think about Deming and how he had said that 94% of the problems within an organization have to do with the systems. And I I see that applying here. We've got these agencies. You started this last question talking about we've got all these agencies. Why is it so hard to implement policy across them? Well, all of these agencies, like Charlie said earlier, they have their own mission set, but they also have their own systems. They, They have their own rationale for how they process people. They, they have their own budget to create their own information systems. These agencies weren't designed to, to uh, support the mobility of contractors across the agency. So we need to address what the systemic challenges are and fix those. That's well spoken, Mary. There are systemic challenges, and a lot of it depends on the individual culture's attitudes and, and uh, practices. It's not so much policy. It is practices that they follow well, we've done it this way. We've always done these extra checks. And I've seen for, I've seen security people saying, well, we're not going to clear this guy, even though he worked on this other project in another agency. Yeah, that was a sensitive project, but mine is more sensitive. So I'm going to take my time before I decide he or she is acceptable in this very specialized program that I'm managing. It's, it's a delusional argument that is made trying to break through the, the bureaucratic ways the individual uh, cultures of the agencies is very hard and and it's going to take i think 
a more dramatic leadership on the part of the DNI. I'm going to add that this places a great deal of pressure and expectations on the part of the executive steering group that's working under Bill Abenina's leadership uh, in, in the DNI to um, right. try to get out the, some of the, the systemic issues that Mary's talking at about by by you know reorganizing and uh, and rescoping the way that the policy is put together. Segwaying to what Kathy was saying about there are changes afoot that um, can impact this positively. And, and one of your questions was about the new DCSA, Defense Counterintelligence Security Agency, and uh, so there's some potential there to uh, influence a more government-wide approach because that agency is going to be serving other federal agencies besides the DOD. So uh, one of the things we talk about in the paper is the fact that uh, across the agencies, they don't have visibility to people who, uh, well, they don't have visibility to their clearance status, and they don't have visibility when someone is put into continuous evaluation instead of having a PR running. That system is owned right now by a department DOD, but when that is inherited by the DCSA, there's the potential to uh, remove some of the barriers to cr- granting access to other federal agencies. You know, I, I can appreciate that if, if DOD was given a budget to build a system, uh, what's their uh, motivation for making that system widely available to other federal agencies when they're going to bear the cost of doing that? So that that's one of those systemic problems that the government needs to address in order to in order to support reciprocity. If DCSA is not in and of itself an executive agent. You know, you still have, as Charlie was pointing out, you still have the director of national intelligence, and depending upon what happens with uh, with the office of personnel management, you still have the suitability and the credentialing executive agents within what is now OPM. The good news of that is that enables bringing together, and I will argue for the first time suitability fitness determinations with national security. One of the hardest parts of of the policy, I believe, is fitting those two aspects of how you vet people, fitting them together. So you have those executive agents and you have the important role of the Department of Defense. The key is how those three work together for the benefit of the U.S. government and the U.S. taxpayer. And at this point, you know, I, I, I think we can all say from our acquaintanceship and our knowledge of the individuals who are heading that is that there's an intent to do so. But again, we need to do everything we can to make sure that uh, that industry is encouraging what we need to be able to do our job most efficiently on behalf of the U.S. taxpayer. Talk about this when you talk about clearance reform. I think one of the things is we've had the same topics for decades that have been discussed. Yep. I'm pretty sure it's a decades long problem if you look back. I'm, I mean, you're exactly correct. As Charlie Famous <laughs> says, it goes back. I mean, the first study was actually done within 10 years of when the system was set up in like the late 50s, early 60s. And and every study that has been done on personal security processes makes almost exactly the same recommendations. So again, I repeat, this is why the work that is being done for the executive steering group is so important. Is this going to be the time that we're really going to get something different out of it? Because the fact of the matter is the process is the process. You have people who have characteristics and you want to decide whether you're going to trust them or not to uh, carry out your duties and to have access to very sensitive information. That's the simple process, and we should be able to solve that now. I'm tired of the old canard that we can't trust contractors like we trust the Blue Badge government officers. Well, the history it tells you something different, starting with Ames and Hansen, Montes. You just go down the line. 
uh, Pelton, who worked for NSA, but uh, became a traitor. It was a, it was a huge, huge, did massive damage to U.S. security. So that's that's an old canard that doesn't stand up. Uh, yes, we've had contractors who with which there have been security problems, but overwhelmingly we usually look to our own house first. And I feel very strongly about that. But there is an attitude in some agencies that, well, because you're a green badger and not just not quite as trustworthy as our wonderful people who work with the blue badges. You, Kathy, and I are all former government employees. Yes. And most right. contractors are. You're exactly right, Mary. And, and yeah, I don't think much changed when we, we changed the color of our badge. That's exactly the point. It's, you know, you're always sort of a, a gubby in your heart because you, you know, made that commitment to public service. And, you know, it's, it, it's, it changes when people who are in government, they get sort of over to the other side and they realize that all of a sudden they're not trusted. It is, it is a little disconcerting. People that build the big systems, the big programs, exquisite hardware, the advanced technologies, most all of those, NSA does some R&D, more pure R&D inside than other agencies, but the work is done out by the Green Badgers, the, 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 the cutting edge, new technologies, and, you know, and it's, it, it, government does not accept uh, uh, startups easily. If, if people that have brilliant ideas trying to sell a brilliant idea well, they, where they're not to be trusted, they don't have people with clearances. I get uh, so there are a lot of a lot of old old bones that uh, that could be dug up that are not uh, that that really that really represent this. In most all cases, you know, I found that uh, that industry is at this stage, particularly uh, the group led by Kevin Phillips and others, who they are very careful and people they hire they do a lot of intensive screening if they if they if they've been awarded a a, a classified contract with the u.s government and they're going to work very hard people like doug thomas security writ large globally for lockheed martin uh, they do such intense screening now that people with problems are weeded out long before they uh, they start working as a contractor on a government uh, contract the, the private industry deserves not not a lot of and and I I've argued with some congressmen uh, I remember at an argument on NPR with a congressman who said we have too many contractors and I said well that's interesting uh, by the way who puts up the uh, overhead uh, base architecture for the intelligence community uh, how many government officers uh, build satellites uh, no answer. And Charlie's absolutely right. One of the things that um, that that government and industry are working together, you know, government that the government folks trying to change policies do recognize the great quality that particularly the uh, some of the larger companies put into pre-screening because nobody wants to waste putting somebody in who's not going to be approved. So they want to minimize that risk as much as possible. And, it, and they're actually getting to the point where some of the new policy will include uh, talking about trusted information providers about not doing duplicate, not duplicating processes across industry and government. If industry's already done it, then and they can validate their sources so that it meets the government standards for where the information came from, well, then they should accept it rather than going out and finding it again. So these are some of the changes that, that I think will make a difference as we move ahead. But, you know, there's a lot of little changes to make up, you know, to, to solve reciprocity. Well, maybe this is the year. 
Yeah, if I could, we wrote another paper in 2014, which was trying to, uh, which was talking about the uh, continuous evaluation. And and one of the things, uh, you know, that one of our committee members, Mitch Lawrence, wrote a lot of the the internal part of it. And as I was writing the introduction, I did exactly what you said. I said, boy, you know, now we have we have the need, we have the crises with Snowden and other people that that point up the need for change. We have we have people who want to change, and we have technology that's going to enable us to change. Now's the time for change, and that was actually published in 2014. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Continuous evaluation is the watchword now of the, of the of the government. We have been, I will say this in the work that Kathy and I and Mary and others have done, we've been a, ahead of our times. We've argued for things that, that eventually government comes around and it becomes the government's uh, uh, fantastic uh, discovery. But in many cases, the, the, the germination started with INSA and the Security Policy Reform Council. I will boast on that, but it's a little boastful, but it's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you're doing important work, and again, bringing visibility to these topics. As we know, unfortunately, you know, once isn't enough. So I appreciate your persistence in continuing to get the information out there and <laughs> filling your reports with data and recommendations, and also having the right conversations with government. So it was a delight and a pleasure to talk to all of you. You're a wealth of knowledge and, and information, so I really appreciate. It. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Security Clearance Podcast. Please visit news.clearancejobs.com for more security clearance news, insights, and information. Have a great day.